Please take a Bible, if you will, and turn almost to the end of it, to the book of Titus, page uh, 998, I believe, in these Bibles in the pews. Our book of church order suggests that uh, on the day that we have officer elections, that a sermon be preached dealing with the qualifications uh, for officers. And every few years I do that. I don't do it every year. But we looked at this passage a, a few years ago, and we'll be looking at primarily at verses um, 5 through, through 10. It may surprise you to find that the New Testament places strong emphasis on the importance of uh, appointing qualified officers in the church. It, it may also surprise you that the New Testament offers more instruction regarding that than on, than on almost any other important subject, church subject, like the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Day or baptism or spiritual gifts. And so there's more teaching in the New Testament on the qualifications for eldership than about any other aspect of biblical leadership. Now just a, Titus, as you can see, is a very brief letter. Uh, we went through a number of years ago and studied the, the whole letter, but just as a reminder, the Apostle Paul had gone to this large island. I know some of you have visited there. It's, it's over 150 miles long and 35 miles wide at places, so it, it was a big place. There are many towns, many villages, and some cities there. Paul, The Apostle Paul had gone there. He had planted churches. Then he had left a co-worker named Titus there to organize the churches and to appoint elders. And so these, these believers in these churches spread out in these towns were baby Christians. They were immature and they were subject to the dangers that can befall such. So Titus had a big job ahead of him. Paul writes this as personal instruction to Titus on how to go about organizing these churches. Uh, but there's much application, application for us here as well today. With those thoughts in mind, let me begin reading in verse one, and I'll read uh, down through verse 11. Hear God's word. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. I'll end the reading there. Let's pray together. 
Oh, Father, as we ask now that you would uh, open our eyes to behold wonderful things uh, from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I want to make a few preliminary observations before we do a quick flyover of the qualities or characteristics should, that this should be true in a, a church officer's life. Uh, first of all, there are no perfect churches. Um, in verse 5, when he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Uh, I was served in a church uh, in South Florida right out of college, and we had a whole network of home Bible studies as part of that church. And they had names typically that went with the neighborhood they lived in. And so that would be known as the, uh, uh, you know, the such of the Arvida neighborhood. And one of the groups wanted to call themselves a New Testament group. They said, we'd like our group, our home Bible study, to be called a New Testament Bible study. Well, the elders and some of the pastors uh, quickly saw, well, by default then, that means the others are not New Testament groups. And then it was also, wonder which New Testament group they're wondering about. The, the group at Corinth, the group at Ephesus, the group at Galatia, all of which had massive problems. If, if you've been here as we've been studying off and on through 1 Corinthians, we see that church had lots of problems in it, big, big time problems. So the idea that, well, the churches in the first century were, were uh, more sinless or perfect, perhaps, or closer to perfection than churches today, history just doesn't bear that out. The Bible doesn't bear it out. So there are no perfect churches, and not to surprise you, and the reason is there are no perfect churches is there are no perfect people. There are only sinners in churches, sinners like you and me. And so Paul left Titus there to bring order to this situation. There was some degree of disorder, maybe even chaos, among all these home churches, these small church plants in these various towns. Second observation is there are no perfect church leaders. These leadership qualifications that I just read and we'll look at more closely in a moment are not based on perfection or extraordinary human talent or exceptional human ability. We find nothing uh, about sinlessness, uh, perfection, or anything like that in this list. There's nothing about being free from failure or mistakes. Now, here's the third observation. God does choose to use imperfect churches with imperfect leaders to accomplish his will and to expand his kingdom. God uses leadership. In fact, rarely do we find as we read in history, rarely do we find any period when there's been a great moving of God where he did not first raise up some godly leader or leaders. That's true in the church. It's true in all of life. Okay, well, Titus was to appoint elders. In his case, unlike today, apparently there were not going to be any votes. He was to go in and appoint them for these, play, uh, these churches, but he had the same criteria as far as qualifications and characteristics to look for that we have. So just briefly, let's look at verses 6 through 8, and we see that the person, the man, is to be above reproach or blameless. That's the umbrella characteristic that should be true of this person's life. It does not mean sinless. It does not mean perfect, for no one then would qualify. But the idea of being above reproach or blameless means not chargeable with some offense. 
This man is not chargeable with some offense. This is a man who lives consistently with what he believes. It is what others in the church see and observe, not necessarily how the man sees himself. That's very, very important. Because the man may be too critical of himself. So here, Titus, in that case, in in our day, we, as members of the church, are to look and see, does this man, does this candidate appear blameless? If you ask him, he'd probably say, oh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not above reproach. I'm not blameless. It's not his call. It's, it's your call. The idea of being evaluated by how others see us sometimes grates against our independent spirit. We say, why should I have to worry about what others observe and think? Well, the answer is that Christian leaders should always be concerned about the testimony of the gospel because we are responsible for the spiritual welfare of others as well as ourselves. And so there are constraints. I can tell you as a pastor, as an elder, uh, that I know Barbara and I live under and we choose not to do certain things and to do others, not because we're trying to portray a false view of what our lives are like, but I represent more than me. She does too. Uh, I represent the church. So what I say sometimes could be quoted back then, well, do you know that First Presbyterian says this? And so I'm, I'm very careful about that. But that not sh- should not just be true of the pastor. That should be true of all the elders. We have to take into account how we're seen by others. But now he gives specific areas where this blamelessness or being above reproach should show up. Okay, so the umbrella quality is the person should be above reproach, Where? Well, first of all, in a marriage. Verse 6, he's to be the husband of one wife. Now, among all the qualifications for elders, none is more controversial than this phrase. Does it mean that the person must be married? Does it mean that he's only to be married once? What if the person has has a divorce in the past and now is remarried? Does that disqualify the person because you could say, well, he's not the husband of one wife? Uh, it obviously, as, as John Calvin said, expresses uh, opposition to polygamy. Now, here's something. I didn't mention this in the first service, but I'll be fast. Uh, I've got a friend who's a, who's a pastor in the Anglican Church that came out of the Episcopal Church here in America. And they first became under the umbrella of the Anglican Church in uh, Uganda. So in Africa, where there's been through history a lot of polygamy, as these churches are expanding, you've got a number of men with multiple wives that are coming in, they're professing faith in Christ and they're coming into the church. So how do they deal with it? And he told me, here's how they dealt with it. They tell the man, from here on out, only the woman you married first is your wife. That is the only one you're to have physical relations with. These others, though, you are responsible to support. And they are free to marry. If they are asked to marry someone else, they are free to remarry. But only the first one is your wife. I thought, that's a pretty creative way to deal with that. Okay, that's, that's big parentheses right there. <laughs> Obviously, so it, it, he, he excluded that. Well, Chip, are you going to answer the question? Here's how I'm going to answer the question. The, I think the literal translation helps us. He's to be a one-woman man. That's it. I don't think it precludes a divorce in the past. You have to get into the... Necessarily, it would depend on the circumstances of that divorce. 
but he's a one woman man. And so there is a, an undoubtable commitment to his spouse. It, it can't mean, or I don't think it can mean, he has to be married because when Paul wrote this, he wasn't married. When Titus, who he's giving instructions to, from all we know, he wasn't married. So if you said, well, a person has to be married, then it, it rules out. Uh, I, I think that's taking its for, the phrase further than it's supposed to go. He has an exclusive and unquestioned devotion to his wife. I was talking with a friend a few weeks ago, and we, we were mentioning a mutual acquaintance. And we both knew who we were talking about, but neither of us could remember his name. And I said, oh, yeah, I know this. And he, he, I was describing characteristics, and then he finally said what I was thinking. He's a ladies' man. I went, that's him. If you look on this list, and you're to say, oh, there's old so-and-so. He's a ladies' man. He's disqualified. As far as what, that's an old term. I know the millennials here are thinking, uh, hey, that's an old term that he's, you know, he's, he's got a roving eye. That's also another, I answered an old term with an old term. Okay, how else is he above reproach? Second, in the area of parenting, his children, it says here, are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, I grew up reading the New American Standard Version. I'm still struggling with the ESV, even though that's the, the version we use here at church. Uh, I had a, a parent come up to me after the first service and say, describe for me debauchery among children. And I said, I think the ESV missed it at that point. I said, I think, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I like what the New American Standard says at that point. And he said, what does that say? It says uh, disobedient. <laughs> that they're in charge of, of disobedience uh, or insubordination. I'll, okay, what does this mean? The Puritans used to say that before a man could shepherd or pastor the big church, the big congregation, this, then he should be able to pastor the little congregation, meaning his family. Uh, what it means is if, is if this man does not tend to the spiritual needs of his own family, those closest to him, then don't dare put him in a position where he's responsible for those who aren't his family members and there are more of them because he will not care for them as well. So the point here is a man is not ready for the responsibility of the welfare of other spiritual lives if he's not willing and if he's not able to take responsibility for those in his own household. Now, to help understand the meaning here, uh, I think we need to look at the language. The word for children here, and there are various words in the New Testament, is little child, as in those that went out to, to the lesson a few minutes ago. We use the term children to speak of our 40-year-old children, those of us that are older. Uh, they had differentiations in the words there and the, how the New Testament was written. But this word is for little children. It's talking about those at home those in, under the parent's authority. Second, the word is plural, children who believe. We're not looking at the beliefs and actions of one child, but at the character of the entire family. And Paul's terminology is not so much requiring us to examine does every child have a profession of faith as to observe is there a consistent evidence of biblical discipline and spiritual nurture. So here's my question. Here's how I would take that. 
Is this man actively engaged with the spiritual development and oversight of his children? That's, that's what it's asking. Or does he take a hands-off approach and just disengage from the family? Uh, and if he does, he, he, that's something to look at, and he, he's not qualified. Is the spiritual development of his children at least a priority with this man? Uh, conduct also, which is above reproach. So here's the umbrella, above reproach, marriage, family, now conduct. He's not to be certain things. He's not to be arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, greedy for gain. But he should be, this is coming from verses 7 and 8, hospitable, which means a lover of strangers, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. Now, let me make this point as a pastor. Almost all of these characteristics should be true of all believers. Uh, For example, the qualification not to be a drunkard is not exclusive to officers or elders. It does not imply that other believers can just be binge drinkers all the time. Uh, But the point is that these things should be true in the life of an elder in God's church. And that is because our lives are incarnational demonstrations of the gospel to those who do not have hope. And hopefully uh, elders are placed in a church to be models of men in submission to Christ experiencing the grace of God every day. And it has a powerful effect then on people. Such as what? Well, look at verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message that has been taught. What is that message of this faithful word? It comes from verse 4. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the message that's been passed down from the apostles. It's the that peace with God is a result of God's grace. And we talk about the bad news, the fact that we are all born spiritually dead, that we need a Redeemer, and that Redeemer was Jesus Christ. And though through his perfect record and through his substitutionary death, and through faith in that, we can have life with God, we can be forgiven of our sins, and this is the hope, and this love of God for us. This is the hope that we have, and we should be able to communicate that to others. Verse 9, the end of verse 9, says these elders are to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. They don't have to have master's degrees in theology, but they should be able to explain. If someone says, why do we think the Bible is true? Why do we think Jesus was anything other than just a a normal man? Um, Why do we we think there there is a God? Basic questions. Why do we think God loves us? Uh, Why do we think Christ died as a substitute for sin? Uh, this person, even though if they may not be able to give instruction at the moment, they would be able to say, let me get back to you on that. I'm going to do some study, and they should be able to do that. Uh, also, they are to, to give encouragement toward others' spiritual growth. I don't know about you, but what encourages me is not perfection. Uh, I told my son sitting up there, and, and I told a couple of weeks, or I made a comment when we saw him run in the marathon. I said, boy, that makes me feel out of shape. Uh, uh, and we're looking at the faces of the people. It, it was no motivation to want to do that either, I can promise you. But, but does perfection encourage you in, in your job, in your vocation? If you're around someone that does what you do, but they can do it about five times better 
it would appear. Does that encourage you? Probably not. I'm never encouraged by the example of something I can never be. Yeah, that just kind of reminds, that's discouraging more than encouraging. And, And that's why they used to say often great players of a sport often don't make good coaches of a sport because it came easy to that person. I had a Hebrew professor that had a photographic memory. And our textbook was that thick, and I'd ask a question. What about this verb? And he said, it's in the bottom right right quadrant of page 109. I I don't learn that way. I can't, that's discouraging. I, I wish I had that kind of memory, but I don't have that memory. So what elders are in a church, not to set an example that we look at and go, boy, that discourages me. I could never live like that. It's that here is a model of a person experiencing God's grace and the transformation that comes from that as they repent, as they sin and repent, and as they ask forgiveness from others, and as they demonstrate what it means to be a growing Christian. That's what it is. And hopefully that will encourage God's people through that example of godliness. Well, let me wrap, move to a wrapping this thing up. The latter part of verse 9 says they're not only to teach, they're also to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. Uh, they are to be at the forefront if there's false doctrine being taught, if there are those that come into the church and they begin to deviate, um, deviate God's people away from what we're to be about and what we're to believe. It's the elders who are to be at the forefront and to examine that and to be able to refute them and say, no, there's no place for that here. Well, why? Well, here, I'm going to explain to you why. And he says the result of the false teaching, he goes on in verse 11, is that entire families are being disrupted and coming apart. What we're interested in is real life. We're not interested in winning an argument of of what's sound doctrine or not. It's, it's what's the result? And false doctrine will hurt families. It will hurt people. Uh, what we believe does matter. And people can be led astray by things that are false. Okay, so let me wrap this up. What, the responsibility of elders. Um, elders must perceive the depth of the needs of God's people. Though I don't know him personally, I was told of a pastor uh, by a friend that was serving in a small church and there were three cases of adultery within a matter of just a few weeks in that church and he could have passed the blame on to others but instead he asked am i the problem he's like that's odd what's he got to do with it he said is there so little power of the gospel evident in the church because there's so little evidence of the gospel's power in my life as the shepherd of this flock It's a difficult balance. I know that feeling. Any of us that are shepherds, that are elders, know the feeling of being responsible for how people uh, follow Christ that are under our care, but at the same time, saying people make choices. And sometimes they're bad choices, and they bring disastrous consequences with them. And I didn't make that choice. And so we live with that tension. But as an elder, I must own the fact that if there is little evident power of the gospel transforming my life, it should not surprise me that it's not happening to those under my care. Uh, It shouldn't stop you. You should never use who is the pastor as an excuse for your own uh, laxity in, in walking with Christ. 
Um, so it's not that you need my example, you need my heart. Uh, being a faithful pastor or parent or missionary or counselor or whatever requires that, that to an extent I confess and realize the problems of this person are mine. And, and I share those burdens with them. So here's my summary. This is, I'm going to quote myself. This is the only sermon I ever quoted myself in. But after I'd done my study some years ago on this, I wrote a little paragraph of what I think the church is and the role of the officers in the church. The local church is a group of sinners saved by grace who individually and collectively are becoming conformed to the image of Christ in their beliefs and actions. The church elders are appointed by the Lord to serve as examples of men experiencing the life-transforming power of the gospel. The result will be encouragement to God's people and refutation of opponents of the truth. This past week, um, Barbara asked me to paint a couple of rooms in our house. I had to distinguish that at first service I said I painted and people thought I was an artist, and we can assure them, no, I meant roll walls, bedroom. You know. So I don't like, I painted houses through seminary, and we would always listen to things. And so I listened to the audio book of David McCullough's The Wright Brothers. Has anybody here read this? It came out in 2015. One person at the first service. Oh, one here. Good. Did you like it as much as I did? I, I couldn't stop. So I listen to this, and every free moment I had, I've had it on my phone, and if I'd go exercise, I'd be listening to the Wright brothers. I thought I knew something about the Wright brothers. I realized I didn't know much of anything about the Wright brothers, besides the fact that they were the first to fly an airplane under its own power, and that they did that at Kitty Hawk on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. That was it. So David McCullough, and I, I love I love to hear him narrate things, and he was the narrator on the, on the audio book, which made it all the, all the better. So I learned of their family uh, from Dayton, Ohio. Their father was a bishop in the Brethren Church. There were five uh, children in the family. There was one sister, Catherine, and then Wilbur was the oldest brother, and Orville was four years younger, and then there were two other brothers. And at a home, it was a pretty structured, disciplined home. Hard work was valued. Character was valued study, independent study was valued. Here's something, and I don't suggest this, and school teachers, don't, please don't write me a letter after this, but if one of the children was really caught up in a book at home, they could miss school that day if they were going to spend it reading. So or, uh, Wilbur and Orville uh, only went to high school. They neither went to college. Catherine went to uh, college and became a school teacher. Um, but they, they studied on their own, and, and they, they studied birds, and they studied insects and how they flew, and they read all the articles that were being published on the theory of flight because there was growing interest, but it was still seen pretty much as theoretical. Uh, so they, they did all this, and, and they opened a bicycle shop, so they, they understood Physics and math were their two key areas. They, they pretty much read everything they could get their hands on of physics and math. And they had a bicycle shop, and they were apparently very, very good bicycles, and they, they sold these bicycles as a means of income. And then uh, Wilbur uh, wrote to the U.S. 
weather service and said, where is a place in the United States where there is a sustained wind of 15 to 20 miles an hour and preferably where there's sand? In other words, so you wouldn't hit something. He didn't spell out why he wanted it, but, you know, not trees and rocks. And they sent him back these maps with areas circled, and he focused on the Outer Banks of North Carolina and at Kitty Hawk. That during September and October, there's about a 15 to 20 mile an hour wind that's, that's almost every day before the weather gets real bad. So in 1900, he and his brother went there. Nothing was there. Fifty people lived in Kitty Hawk. They took a tent and lived on the sand dunes there at Kill Devil Hill and uh, had camp food and so forth. And they, they had built this glider back in Dayton, and they would, they would take, put it up like a kite, and they would study it, and they recorded everything they saw. And this was highly secretive. They didn't publish any of this uh, because they, didn't, they did not want this to get out. And then he came back in 1901. He came back in 1902. They'd spend about two months out of the year there. And then finally on December the 17th, 1903, this has a point, believe me, this still relates to the sermon. Just give me a minute, I'll get there. Uh, they, uh, on December the 17th, they, they've had this, this machinist from the, uh, the bicycle shop had built a, a motor. He, he built an engine. It, it was 12 horsepower and four cylinders, and they mounted this thing, and, and they invited people to come, and five men came, came down from a rescue station uh, there at Kitty Hawk that, you know, for shipwrecks and so forth. They came down to watch and uh, Wilbur and Orville made four flights and you know each one was a little higher a little longer and these guys they didn't even realize they were watching history being made as they're watching this at the after the fourth flight they, they were said well let's make one more flight let's go way down we're going to fly, fly way down the beach and as they were standing there if you've ever been on the beach and an umbrella <laughs> takes off that's what happened to the airplane and a guy was wrapped up in the wiring and he got carried along and the, the airplane got smashed with smithereens. There's another old dated word. And, and he, <laughs> this fellow, he was okay. He was just shaken up as he got tangled up in the, in the airplane. Uh, and it said he became the first person in history to a uh, victim of an airplane crash. <laughs> <laughs> so this is December of 1903. The next year, they go public. Um, the U.S. Uh, armed forces had wasted a lot of money with, with this uh, Dr. Langley, uh, that $50,000 for, for an invention that just sank in the river uh, near New York. And he, they weren't interested in any investments, so the rights weren't asking for money, but they said, we think you would be interested in our invention, and got two letters back saying, no, we're not interested. But France was, so they, Wilbur went to France for a year, and before thousands and thousands and thousands of people, they saw them, him fly this, this airplane uh, numerous times all, all around France and then in Berlin and in Rome and in London, and they basically were, became world famous, he and his brother. But, all right, where's the point ship? Here's the point. They fly for the first time under propulsion, in December the 17th, 1903. In 1908, just four years later, where there had been no airplane factories before, four years later, just in France, there are more than 15 factories producing airplanes. And it mentions there in the book, David McCullough says, all of this 
came about because of the pioneering leadership of Wilbur and Orville showing what was possible. Many people had thought it wasn't possible uh, to, to fly, though they had dreamt about it for, for centuries. And now they did it, and they showed it was possible. And others followed behind them and started uh, customizing and creating. And, and then it was only a matter of years, not many years, before Charles Lindbergh flies across the Atlantic. By the way, after he did that, he came and visited Orville in Dayton. <laughs> and when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, he had a piece of that first plane's covering with him from the first plane of the, of the Wright brothers. You don't need to read the book now, do they, Harriet? I told them everything in it. <laughs> do yourself a treat. Read this book. God has put elders in the church to show what is possible to show that it is possible to live a Christ-centered life, to have a Christ-centered marriage, to have a Christ-centered home, to, to die a Christ-centered death, to go through illness and trouble and problems in a Christ-centered way. And as we see that, we see what's possible as they model before us what it means to be growing Christians. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that the church... The local church is not our invention, and we try to mimic business models and, and uh, athletic models and other things like that, but it's different. It's a body. It's uh, living, and it's centered on Christ. Thank you that you've structured it to where there's local leadership and elders and deacons and, and shepherds, and we pray and ask that you would bless and guide us as a congregation in, in those areas, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.